Welcome to the Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast. This is a weekly show dedicated to all things Port Adelaide Footy Club. I'm your host, Macca19, and with me as co-host is the very welcome return of Ford Fairlane. How are you, mate? I'm good. Yourself? Yeah, great, buddy. Great. Um, and for the very first time on the podcast, um, we've got one of the most revered and respected figures on our forum. It's the one and only Russell Ebert Handball. Uh, good evening, um, Ford. Good evening, Macca. Thanks for the invite. Not a problem at all. Now, as we do with all the newcomers, um, we'll find out a little bit about REH and how he came to support about Port Adelaide. Yeah, I was thinking about this during the week. I definitely know that I watched every game of the year when I was 10 years old and I went to a new school, so that was 74. But some point between 1970, I remember watching the prelim final on TV, we lost to Glenelg, and I definitely remember watching the elimination final, Jack Carroll's game. I became a rusted-on sort of supporter. A combo of things, I guess, mates at school, uh, a few of them. Uh, I went to a small Catholic school from uh, grade one to f- four, and then grade five was when I said I went to a school and started playing footy, and I watched every game. Um, I had a cool, a sort of cousin who was a bit cool, because he'd sort of lived in America, and he was maybe about six or seven years older, and he was a port man, so he probably influenced me. Yep. Uh, and another cousin sort of did. My uncle said took me to have a look at um, the, the old Juventus before they became Adelaide City and I liked the black and white stripes. I think that had a bit of influence. And also, my, my both sides of my family are immigrants, but they started on the west, but I grew up in the east side of town, Tea Tree Gully, Hope Valley um, sort of area. But my mum's side of the family stayed uh, on the western suburbs. And um, my uncle, owned a construction um, earthwork sort of company and he actually solved the problem of how to dig up West Lakes and he ended up um, digging up the lake. Yeah, right. And so when we were sort of five, six, seven years of age, you used to go and spend a week or two down at grandma's and grandma had, and grandpa had a big block and next to them was uh, Uncle Vince's sort of yard. And um, so I sort of saw West Lakes being dug out and I remember Footy Park being sort of built so I was all sort of on that side of town, not really a regular basis, but, you know, uh, we'd go over there occasionally and then you'd have that sort of holiday period. So I sort of knew the area. So that probably a combination of those things is why I ended up being a port supporter and, you know, they were doing well and obviously that helps. But, um, yeah, so I was rusted on by 1974, I reckon, by the time I was 10. Beautiful, beautiful. So do you remember what your first game was that you went to? Um... Adelaide Oval, it was Port versus North because uh, my folks really went into footy and I used to go to footy, there was three of us that used to go and two of us were Port men and one was a North man and um, his mum was North, uh, Craig's mum was North and Craig's dad was Sturt, so I saw a lot of Sturt and North games as well and we, that was Adelaide Oval and I went to, 70, it was 75 and 76 uh, Ford that um, Port played at Adelaide Oval, wasn't it? So would have been 1977, the first game back at Alberton. Yep. And the game against Norwood, there must have been 21, 22,000 people absolutely crammed. Oh, and was that that game? Three points, four points. So that was the first game I saw at Alberton because we saw a few games uh, at, at Adelaide Oval and also a few games at Footy Park in 70, 
Uh, yeah, we didn't get. I don't think I went in '74, so it would have been uh, North versus Port whenever they played 1975 at Adelaide Oval. Nice one. What about your favourite game? It's almost the prelim final in 2004. You know the great. <laughs> yeah, it, the pressure. It was, was a great game. It was a fantastic it, game. Well, it was a great game. It'd probably be. Look, the three games that I'd find really hard to separate would be the 77 grand final. That was the first grand final I, I ever saw. You know, I cried 76 at home, listened to it on the radio. So 77 was joy. And, you know, we, we, were, called the cho- we were called the chokers in the 2000s, but it was a little bit kinder, gentler society in the 70s, but it was just as harsh. We would have been called the chokers because we'd be lose six grand finals between 65 and 77. So 77 was important and both the flag in 2004, but more importantly, the prelim final after three years of, you know, stuffing up in finals yep. um, to finally make the big one. That's it. So that, that, they'd be three. I, I find it really hard to split. But if I, if I was forced, I'd almost go the prelim final. Sure, sure. What about your favourite player? Well, it's interesting. I talked about 74. So 74, I was a big Andy Paul fan. Uh, and I don't know why, but as a Nord mate, he um, it was between him and Greg Turnbull that he was going to be the best uh, rookie player. Then 75, I actually played footy for the school and I wore number nine and became a big Robert Watman fan. And he, he was from New South Wales, so I subconsciously copied the way he played. And he used to he used to tuck the ball underneath his arms because he came from a rugby league sort of background from Sydney. And so the day I finished playing footy, that's how I used to, if I ever went for a run or a bounce, I'd always tuck it under like he did. <laughs> and then and then 76 was, you know, I always admired Russell Ebert, but 76 was just, I went to a lot more games in 76 and he was just brilliant. I probably went to eight, nine games that year and just in awe of him every game that I saw him play. Beautiful. All right. Now, the reason for this podcast is we're going to talk about the events of 1990 and, and how the Port Adelaide Football club uh, came to join the AFL later on um, and all the events that happened that year. Um, but the most pressing thing at the moment is uh, we should probably talk about Alan Richardson first and foremost. Um, for the past couple of weeks, he's been vehemently denying um, any interest in the St Kilda coaching job, but it's came out overnight um, and today that he's interviewing today for the job. Um, how do we see that panning out? I think um, I've they wouldn't. He wouldn't have gone over there without a, a pretty strong indication that the job's his for the taking. Um, he's been, as he said, he's been strongly denying rumours for a long time, and he hasn't really thrown his hat into the coaching ring at several of the jobs that have been available before this St Kilda one. Um, it's interesting because I've I just posted on the boards earlier today that I um I think we really need to make a stand here because I find the position he's in as director of coaching is one of the most critical at our football club because his job's not just as an assistant coach. I mean, we're not looking at just a senior assistant here and getting a waters in or something like that. This is a guy whose job is to establish the coaching structures at Port Adelaide into the foreseeable future that helps us produce coaches from within and and makes us a a strong, sustainable club that's very much self-reliant. I find the job he's in at the moment is probably even greater than that of a senior coach. And I don't think that we should just be standing aside and letting him walk out. The first thing I'd be doing is taking St Kilda to court for inducing him to breach his contract because I um, I really feel strongly about 
the the importance of his role and just what a great fit he is at Port and I'd I'd love to keep him there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Nick, what are your thoughts, mate? Um, I started off like uh, Ford and sort of uh, was a bit angry. Then then I thought about it and I came and I thought, you know, he's sort of a bit like um, Ken. You know, he's he's been so close. He said no, he said no, and then obviously something has gone to him. He said, all right, let me, let me go for an interview. Whether that means he's got it or not, I, I'm not sure because you hear different things from... I, I listened to 3AW today to try and get a feel as, as well as a little bit on 5AA to see how serious it was. And now I'm sort of after I reread Ford's um, uh, post, it makes me think again is that, yeah, it probably does piss me off because it's um, it's an important thing. I'm probably the angriest at St Kilda for being incompetent and leaving it so long. Um, well, that's fair enough too. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty ridiculous really. The natural state of being. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, look, look, I posted something I think today or yesterday. Um, St Kilda have only had one guy that's served six full seasons. And that was Yabby Jeans, and he won his and he won his premiership in his sixth year in 1966. He started in 1961. So um, Grant Thomas is their second longest. He's, he served what was it six or seven games after Blight got the bullet, and then five full years. And then then Stan Alves and Ross Lyons have done five full years. It's it's a, it's a it's poison not, chalice. Yeah, it it's is a poison chalice. I mean, yeah. everyone used to go on a couple of years ago that Port Adelaide was the poison chalice, but you know we've had about seven coaches in the last 90 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they seem to change coaches every three years. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I, um, look, Ross Lyon walked out, so he probably would have stayed. But, um, uh, you know, what, what, I, what I have been thinking a bit today is I think Richo's got a daughter and she must be doing a final year for them for them to have stayed over there twelve year, uh, in year 12, for them to have stayed there last, or all of 2013, not moved over. So... If St Kilda threw a shitload more money and he goes to the family, look, they've given, you know, they've upped it by 80% what they initially offered. I wouldn't be surprised if they said, go, go for the interview, um, see what you think, see what they're offering, because it's a big thing to move. You know, you're, you haven't moved yet. You know, you might have put your mind through it, but if you're going to move kids and yeah, you know, I don't know how many kids he's got. He's definitely, I know he's definitely got a daughter, but I'm not sure if he's got more than that. Moving your kids away from from their friends is is a big thing. So I can see why there's family pressure why he's decided to go for the interview. Um, it, it would be ridiculous of St Kilda, given their experience with Blight, to say, "Here, you come for the interview, we'll give you the job." Surely, surely they've learned. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. I'll be pretty annoyed if he leaves to be honest just because it's he's such a good fit with us he's such a good fit with Ken and Burgess and you know KT you know he spoke to KT and said yeah I'm here for the long haul and then 12 months later if he ups and leaves that'll be you know pretty disappointing I would think uh, yeah yeah it would, would be disappointing it's I guess how much anger do you have towards Richo <laughs> That's, that's oh, look, I mean, he's well within his rights to go for the job, and I don't feel any anger towards him at all. I mean, if he's got, um, you know, if he wants to have a senior coaching career, then, you know, this would be probably not the best place to start looking, I would think. But, you know, it's a job there. He'll, uh, he'll have almost the entire list um, made up of young players in a couple of years' time. He'll be able to build it himself. 
um, and see where he goes from there. So, yeah, look, no hard feelings towards Richo at all. Um, but the situation is ridiculous. It is very, very annoying. This think, late in, this, in the uh, in the off-season. It, it's really... It is difficult. And I, I think... You, you, I know we don't want to point the finger at Richo, but for me, he signed a contract for a position he knew is really important for the future of our football club. Uh, I'm, I'm not that comfortable with him walking away from that now to take on the Poison Chalice job as well. Um, because it's happened to have come up when he's he's knocked back three or four, or knocked back even throwing the hat into the ring with three or four others. I think there comes a point where you know you make a commitment. He's he's great mates with Ken Hinckley, and sometimes you've got to stand by your decisions. And I know it's it's quite fashionable, you know, to always maybe throw just throw the baby out with the bathwater at times, and people just seem to accept. Okay, we will make the decision because it's always there's always more money involved, but. But sometimes I think, you know, you've got to stand by your decision and, and stand by the commitment you've made to a club to help it improve itself um, in, in a way that's really important to the, the future of that club. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, let's say we take it to court. I mean, I don't know what, what Stewie Jew did, but he was stopped. Okay, he's an assistant coach, I get that. But if somebody doesn't want to be there... You hang on to them? I, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think we just... I know, I know we're speculating, but I guess I'm just uh, hoping that um, he goes, he has a look and says, bugger this, I'm not interested. Yeah, I thought well, I was, I'm just hoping that they're foxing for Choco, and this is just a ploy to sort of get Choco to sign a contract that um, is under what he wants. Well, I think Mission Possible posted earlier that um, it's as much rich I might be interviewing St Kilda as St Kilda interviewing him, and I quite like that. Yep. And, and maybe that's that's the case. It's it's really hard to say, you know, about making a stand when you you don't know the full story and what what really is going on. But the backflip just scared me a bit. I've got to admit, you know, I was this morning. I was I was really solid thinking, no, he's not going to go. He's really committed to us. He's he, he's in it for the long haul. He's moving his family here. He came out last night and he said, no, I'm I'm not interested. I don't know how many times I have to say it. I'm not going. And then, you know, I'm looking on, on the net later this morning and reading he's changed his mind and he's going for an interview. Yeah. It was quite bizarre. I was uh, I saw your thread this morning and it had about 10 replies and I read it and I thought, oh, yeah, that's that's fairly interesting, whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah nice. we might have a new sponsor. You know, that, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that, that'll be great. point of the thread? <laughs> and then, then I checked it four hours later and there's suddenly 200 replies. I'm thinking, God, oh, maybe the new sponsor's come out already. And no, it's uh, Richo's possibly leaving. I thought, God, what a shit sandwich. That's great. (laughs) So glad I looked that up today. (laughs) That's it. Well, look, we might move on from that um, and get on to the the major discussion point of this podcast, which is the events around 1990. Um, Something that changed the South Australian football landscape uh, forever, in a good way, I think. Um, Ford, I might throw to you first um, and just get a bit of an overview of, of what happened pre-1990 and maybe why the club um, made the decision to sort of come to talks with the AFL. I think the um, the possibility of an SA entry into a, a national competition is something that, that had been discussed with in South Australian and Victorian football since the mid-80s. There's certainly quite a bit of talk about it. There was quite a bit of talk of Port and Norwood going in. Um, certainly, I think the the preference was at that time, at least for a um, 
for club-based sides to, to join it. It's, as is the way in South Australia, it, it really didn't get much beyond talk and it stalled and stalled and stalled. And I think what was happening was as the Victorian checkbooks got bigger and the clubs in Victoria were able to throw more money at players, South Australia basically started hemorrhaging players. Certainly Port Adelaide were hurt by it. But I think other clubs too, I mean, the, the massive coup of Carlton's in the mid-80s when they took Motley, Naley, Bradley... And then Platten went over to Hawthorne. <clears throat> there was some, you know, important. They lost other players uh, along that, uh, along those lines. Of Abernethy and Phillips had gone probably a bit earlier than that. Um, Philatic went during that time as well. We a lot of players were starting to get swallowed up. There'd been a long time in South Australia hadn't been hit as hard as say WA. South Australia's always had a very parochial football stance and players had stayed simply because they like playing in South Australia. I mean, we, we hung on to Scott Hodges probably for two years longer than we would have um, simply because he loved playing at Port Adelaide. And yep. Port Adelaide, I think, recognised what was going on. Probably every club recognised it, but Port Adelaide decided, OK, this this is going to got to stop. We want to be on the biggest stage in the biggest competition the, this this club has got to do something. You know, I'm not saying it was entirely altruistic, but certainly it was something to stop all of these players leaving. And it was also to put itself onto the biggest stage. And I think it's the, the club's record over a, a number of years, and especially the Kale era, where you know won premierships in '77, '79, '81. Uh, Kale went away for a, to coach at Collingwood, and then West Adelaide came back, and we won a, another three in a row from '88 to '90. And the the time was right. The Western Australians to join the competition. Brisbane had a team in a national competition for goodness sake. Sydney had a team, and South Australia didn't. And I think it it was just clear, you know, where that the flow of the current was happening. And in South Australian football, it, it was just continue to be well we'll talk about it we'll talk about it and I remember uh, Max Bashir up on the stage after one of the grand finals and going well I think you know we're really happy with what we've got here we talk about going to the VFL but this is a pretty good competition and you know it's almost a collective internal groan and you thought they just they don't want to take the step and then in the end Port Adelaide took it whether you know there was always a talk of us being a patsy and a, a setup to get the SANFL to go in. I'm I'm not convinced that's true. I've always believed that the um, AFL was interested in getting Port Adelaide into the competition. That they they wanted a club side. They'd had a lot of problems with these composite sides being formed. Even the West Coast Eagles and I, I know Nickers, um, you know, Russell Ever Hamble has put up the. Um, history of their club a few times and, and they were a real financial basket case for a number of years and yep. they wanted a club that, that had a following and a supporter base. Alan Schwab had enormous respect for the Port Adelaide Football Club and it was probably he, he that initiated that contact through Ian McKenzie to start the whole process of getting a South Australian team into the AFL. Yep, that's fair enough too. I mean, if you look at the players that we lost, um, two VFL sides in those sort of mid to late 80s, I mean, there's just a raft of talent. You look at guys like Greg Anderson and Danny Hughes, um, you know, guys like Simon Tregenza, David Brown, all these guys were drafted but chose not to go. Um, how do you think the sort of player retention scheme had a part in that? 
It, it, uh, it allowed Darren Smith to play for about five more years than he wanted to in, in, in the end. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a factor. I think it, it did alleviate some of that financial concern with, with players were going to miss out on money. But there was also, I still remember the days when players were getting knocked back for it um, because clubs were putting it up as a superannuation scheme for some of their players that were never going to leave. And wanted to basically, it was almost like a, a, a busy contract for Judd type of situation where it's here we go, we can, we can get you extra money and it's not going to cost us anything. And I think um, I'm pretty sure Michael Ash was knocked back for one um, because I don't think anyone really thought he was going to go and he certainly never joined the Crows. Yep. And um, I think other clubs tried it on a bit with that. I, I think it played a role. But again, I think there's a very peculiar parochial uh, mentality in South Australia at times that play, the club the players will stick with their clubs and uh, and will tough it out in that, that situation. But but again, the, the barriers were breaking down and the, the walls were coming down. I think with the young younger players especially were starting to look over the board. I mean, the older players, it's it's a bit harder to go over there and try and establish yourself with the younger guys. You get in there at a, a decent age and, and jump into it. I think guys like Rick Davies and Russell Lee that said, you know, that they should have gone over years before and, and really would have made an impact. I think Russell had a, a sensational year the year he went there in 79. He was 30 years old and... and did, and played some superb footy, despite you know the, the propaganda that goes around occasionally that he had an ordinary year. He seems to get lumped into Graham Corns who got sent home halfway through the year. Yeah, but, um, Saliba had a fantastic year that year. He oh, actually he, lived in Adelaide. He lived in Adelaide and used to yeah. fly over. He trained with Port um, early yeah. in the week. He yeah, died just... on Thursday or Friday and um, trained once with North Melbourne. And you know he averaged 25 touches a game. I think he. He had he was second or third on both their handball and their kick lists, and and came second or third in uh, Brownlow votes for them that year. And you know, ahead of guys like you know Keith Gregg and Shimmel Bush, and just some absolute stars of the game. What are your reasons, or what do you think the reasons are behind the SANFL being reluctant towards moving towards an AFL spot or a VFL spot um, earlier than they planned? Well. WA had to do it. WA basically, WA was like um, your middle-tiered European soccer clubs. They were selling players to survive. SA didn't have to do it. Um, also, Football Park. It, it, it's easy to bag the sample about Football Park because you know we got we got we got screwed there once we got into the AFL. But F- Football Park gave the sample uh, a solid base that the WAFL never had, and. You know, the other reason why little Max is a you know, hard little bastard, he had to fight Don Bradman. And, you know, with, with sort of footy park uh, closing down, the sort of recalling the old stories, you can see why he's a nuggety little old bugger because he went and looked at sev- him and others at the Sample went and looked at several sides. And the big one that they, that they wanted to was that Islington just um, passed a prospect there uh, where, where the train... I think there's two trains, not a train station, but it's a major intersection or something. So they wanted it there, but basically Bradman stopped it. And that's why they ended up at Footy Park, because it was um, it was cheap. So you had this mentality, I think, at the Sandfield, is that we've done it tough. You know, we've taken a lot of risks, which they did. You've got to be honest and say what they... You know, when they asked the foundation members to pay up 
six months earlier just to pay it so they can make interest payments. And that, that's sort of, um, in that six months, that's when, uh, you know, with the Yom Kippur War and then the second lot of uh, OPEC oil crisis, petrol prices, oil prices went up 400%. People forget that. So when you go through those hard times and you survive them, you know, you then get this mentality, why the bloody hell do I got to change? We're doing all right. We don't need this upheaval. We had this upheaval 15 years ago. Whereas, whereas West Australia had to go in. They couldn't hang on any. They, they, they were desperate. And the other thing too that West Australia, for Western Australia is that the, um, the old Australian National Football Council um, had sort of representatives. And Victoria, had, the VFL had five votes, and I think SA had two or three, and WA the same, and Tassie. You needed to get 10 votes. And the VFL basically, at the start of 1986, put enough development monies into the smaller states, and they voted with the VFL to slash the, um, the transfer fees from 60 grand for every player that goes to the VFL to about 21,000, 22,000. So the WA clubs knew that that you know, some, some clubs were selling four players a year, a quarter of a million bucks back in 1984, 85, 86. It's a lot of money. It's, it's, it's the money that basically, you know, is the difference between you. Just the, the, the WA had the independent commission because they had this thing called the Mitchell Inquiry. So you had independent people, independent of the clubs making the decision. So, so, that, so West Australia came from a different point of view, whereas SA was solid. They'd gone through the hard yards of building their own stadium and the risks associated with that. You know, they were conservative, they were more frugal, they had a deviction, you know, the old kick of Vic, and it's ceding power. People don't cede power easily. And I think that, that kick of Vic mentality is something that, that showed up as well again in that parochial football sense that you, it was almost treachery to think of, of heading to Victoria. I think it, it really did play on the minds of, of uh, players. But also those players that they they seem to have a very strong connection with their clubs, and as you said, the the Victorian clubs just threw stupid money at um, at at the Western Australian clubs to their players. I remember when I think it was Gary Shaw, the, the really speedy, mop-headed rover. He was a, a bit of a prototype of John Platten, and and this is I think the Western Australian club he he played for said, oh, you can have him for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and and Collingwood paid it, and then they found out that he also was aligned to a Northern Territory club. And the Northern Territory club said, oh, we'll have a go at this too. Yeah, we want 150000 as well, and Collingwood paid it. And he wound up costing them $300,000. <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't really didn't had that much of an impact when he went over there, but it was it was just sort of the way that went. They had that, that whole Ardath Cup or you know, whatever it was from year to year, their ninth competition, and they would bring the... The, Victoria, the Western Australian and the South Australian clubs in, I think, sort of to have a bit of a look over who might um, fit in well in their competition and that they could buy next. And and that certainly um, helped them in their their processes. And I think it was um, Shaw, for example, his form in some of those games that caught their attention. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, the big clubs seem to... I've got, I've got in, in front of me here is Gary Lonell's Football Limited book. And it's... It, he really should do a second edition. He wrote it in '95. But the, the thing that comes through that was that there was almost—I'm sure it happened in WA and SA as well—but it seemed to be in the Victorian clubs. You had these really rational business people who made a lot of money, but once they got involved with clubs, uh, they became uber fans and almost lost their rationality. And in in the '80s, late '70s, early '80s, you had ridiculous money being thrown for the for the glory of winning a flag. 
and especially the Vic saw themselves as the dominant state and, you know, pay anything to get the best new player. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen the film The Club, but there's a, there's a lot of truth to that about when they get that Jeff Haywood character, the great footballer from Tasmania, who pays a ridiculous amount of money, you know, and he's more interested in sort of, you know, smoking a few cones and having a good time and stuff like that. It's, it's it. There was a, a fair bit of truth to, to, to it. At the time, I thought it was exaggerated, but with the benefit of hindsight, it happened. Well, let's talk about the on-field stuff. Let's leave the off-field stuff alone for a moment before we get to the... Uh, the actions of late July. Um, it happened after round 14. So the first 14 rounds of 1990, um, I believe we were on 11 wins and three losses. Uh, we were sitting pretty comfortably in the top uh, couple of teams in the competition with Glenelg. Yep. Um, what are your memories of, uh, of those sort of early rounds of 1990? I know I remember sort of, uh, especially the Anzac Day game against Nord at Footy Park, which had uh, 36,000 people. Um, I think it was the most for a game at Footy Park for a minor round. Yeah, I remember that game. That was definitely a bit... Um, uh, I think the only game that might have beaten it was that double header in 88. Other than yeah. that, it was the biggest. Uh, it, was, it was either the biggest or number two, and if it was number two, it was only that game, that double header game. Yep. The uh, the Russell Johnson, Carl Delina game. Yep, yep. Yeah, we'd, we'd certainly... I mean, we'd been winning without really dominating games. I mean, we were rolling along quite nicely and I think um, had, had knocked over a, a number of sides. And I think, as you said, it was about a 11-3 and um, we we looked pretty good. We'd probably already won two flags. Um, and it was almost at that point where Port, you almost got the, the idea Port was sort of Coast, coasted into finals these days all those days they did what they had to won as many games as they had to then just found another gear and got going so it was really we were, we were cruising along we, we dropped a couple that I guess along the way and I think surprise lost to West Adelaide especially where we had a lot of injuries yep. um, we I think we'd um, rolled over Glenelg in uh, sort of near the back end of that, that run of games and that was a game that we we agreed to move from Albert and the Footy Park to accommodate a, a, a big crowd, and I think they got nearly twenty five thousand there. Yeah, one by twenty points. That one. Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, we, we were nicely positioned, and the the usual teams, the usual suspects, are up there. Norwood were up there, Glenelg were up there, and uh, it it was um, it was just travelling along nicely without being spectacular. Except for Scott Hodges, he was over the top. Yeah, well, even even then he he hadn't not just yet. Really not just yet. His, 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 it was again after the announcement. It, he, he kicked. Oh, oh, you're probably going to go into that anyway. But yeah, um, he basically kicked forty goals in four games. Wasn't that in mid July? Uh, he kicked a couple either side of the announcement and a couple because he had that that four games where he kicked ten goals. I thought it was two. One side of the announcement and two the other side. No, he went bang straight after the announcement. Um, he kicked seven goals against Torrens, which was the week before. Um, and then it was uh, against West Adelaide, he kicked 14. Then he kicked 10, 11 and another 11 the week after that as well. So he kicked 40, 46 goals in four weeks, which is uh, phenomenal, really. I, I believe that's a SANFL record for you know a four-week period. I mean, he broke basically every record that year uh, for a goal kicker. He he did. He he just he destroyed them. He kicked 
He uh, he kicked six lots of ten goals or more in the minor round. He was the first player to achieve that, you know, in a single season, and he he still had the finals to come. Ridiculous, crazy time. Yeah. The, and, um, and of the, course, the one, the one thing I remember was just the intensity of the games. Once the news broke, just the intensity—not just the crowd, but actually on the field as well—but the crowd, the crowd intensity. I didn't go to a lot of the games because I was playing footy. But that's mates who went, or if you saw, they've done the replays. And I'm not talking about the KG incident. I'm just talking about just generally the public. There was this because I, th- I went to one game after the announcement. It was just really tense. That's right. Well, let's talk about. Uh, let's go back to the off-field and talk about what happened as the announcement broke. I believe there was there was almost a world war going on at the time uh, between Iraq and Kuwait, um, and that got really pushed back to the back pages. Really, um, it's amazing. Of, it's of the news. on a page two, and I still remember. Um, I think it was a one of the news telecasts at the time that led with the. Um, the the port story um, ahead of the the Iraq invasion of Kuwait, and and I remember the uh, the news editor at the time was actually pilloried by the the national by the national boss saying, well, "What the hell are you doing?" And he's going, <laughs> no, "This this is South Australia. This is the news here," and it. Uh, it, that it did it, it pushed that off the front page, or at least shared it. Yep. So what happened in those days in uh, in sort of uh, July? 1990. What? How did it come about that we were going to push for the AFL? Basically, Alan Schwab was going to uh, come and speak at a business luncheon, and Bruce Weber decided to bugger it. It's now or never. It was, it was pretty much his attitude, and the ball started rolling. The other thing that's sort of important is that Alan Schwab always wanted to be, um, I guess Ross Oakley wanted to be the, uh, the CEO, the chief guy. So to placate him, he was... Um, he was called an executive commissioner, not a commissioner, not the CEO, but he so he got a special title. And he's the only one, if you look in the history books, he's the only one that had that title. And he decided to push or, you know, encourage Weber whilst Oakley was on was on holiday. So one, he always, he knew the Port people through the Big Bob, you know, when he was involved in Richmond and, and Port people. But he also probably saw it as his opportunity to get the South Australians in, you know, start the ball rolling because that was part of his ego thing. Um, so that's talked a little bit about in the, in this Gary Lanell book. But um, yeah, that, that was, it was, the, it was um, him coming to Port for the businessman's luncheon that was the real key to, for Bruce Weber to decide to say, OK, let's get serious about this. And, and Schwab went through um, Ian McKenzie, who was probably running the general store up in Corn at the time. I, I think he was the former manager, general manager then, and um, he was the, the intermediary. And certainly Schwab was was known to have enormous respect for Port Adelaide. Um, he, he thought Port Adelaide was the best club outside of Victoria, and just saw us as a natural fit to go straight into the competition. We have established supporter base club infrastructure in place and I think back then um, it, it was very much we would go in with that club infrastructure I think people sort of they they can only they view it through the lens of today where you just see the draft and things like that but back then we were going to take basically a zone in with us and draw from that zone as well as from the draft over that period and, and build a side up that was that was competitive as opposed to poor old Brisbane who got basically you know the bottom end of everyone's list to build their side and and the Western Australians who who were just struggling um, struggling certainly financially and 
uh, I guess, uh, relatively mediocre as a uh, as a club on the field, and they could see Port Adelaide would come in, be pretty strong straight away, and and really get into the into the competition and and have a presence right from the outset. It's really one of the uh, one of the funny things I do remember from it is um, the the Victorian media loved it because. One, they were able to annoy every Collingwood supporter by saying Port Adelaide coming into the AFL, they're going to be the magpies and they're going to wear black and white. And, and of course, you know, the shrieks from Victoria Park could be heard over the border. And then they would go to the opposition supporters and go, hey, guys, guess what? There's going to be another black and white team called the magpies coming into the competition. And they're even more successful than Collingwood. And so, of course, all the opposition was, ah, no, not another bunch of them. And it, it was, it was. They were having a ball at the time. The Victorian media, they loved it. As they would. And Collingwood were the reigning premiers, so once they heard about that, and you know, they're not going to have our colours. Yeah, you had um, McAllister, the president, started. Um, uh, I guess lobbying. They're not coming in. We're not going to let them in and stuff like that. Yeah, when Weber was really, really bullish at the outset, and I think the. He'd had a, something of a, a guarantee from Schwab and Oakley that, you know, we'd, a, we'd at least be wearing the Guernsey and the colours. I think even back then there was a bit of talk that, you know, we might not get away being the Magpies as well. I think there was a... Uh, I, I do remember back then about some discussions around another logo, but certainly the colours and the Guernsey would be going in and, and Weber was quite bullish about that, but it, it turned out that that wasn't quite as simple as as what they were thinking at the time. Okay, so we had signed a heads of agreement that we were going to join the AFL in 1991 as the Port Adelaide Footy Club. So where about did it go wrong? What happened to for things to go south? I think um, the the commissioners, or the, the executive, uh, underestimated the the commission to some the, the commissioners of the of the clubs to some extent. Um, they got they got very nervous because the enormous response here in terms of legal action and and media outcry and the response of of the South Australians in general. Yep. I, I think there was the clubs also started a bit narky about the conditions. Porter negotiated some very good entry conditions that were significantly watered down for the entry of the Crows. Um, and that also included um, airfares being covered. They were, where's the money coming from? They're obviously going to lose lose players. That, you know, players that had signed the old Form Fours or I think had been drafted were were allowed to be released from that if they wanted to join Port Adelaide. There was you know, it was a limit on the number, but it was a pretty significant number. Yep. And I think overall, I think the the clubs. The club started to get cold feet. I mean, there's always been a lot made about Collingwood, and, and there was always talk that in the beginning it was probably they they didn't have the vote in the end because they knew they didn't have the numbers, and Collingwood were probably the one holdout at the time. But as it wore as it wore on, it just it did get harder and harder. So, what about in terms of uh, in South Australia itself? I mean, it basically turned into a civil war. Yeah. But, the the, prob- the problem for Port was that in May there had been this summit down at Yankalilla or somewhere down south in the Flora Peninsula. I think it was Yankalilla. Um, what was the big? Not was a really resort, but what was the, what was the place down Yankalilla way? The um, 
you know, he goes swimming and he's ride horses and stuff like that. Anyway, I'm sure it was down there. There was a, a three-day sort of summit thing, and they had a vote to say, um, you know, we're going to go in because there was a, an invitation for 1993, maybe 92, to put a to put a composite team in. And the story goes that Port told uh, Dave Boyd, who was our delegate, to abstain from voting, but he voted with all the other clubs. And it, that's the critical bit because when 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 the Sandfall and the Sandfall clubs took Port to court, their argument was that that was a deceptive vote. That they that they deliberately voted not to enter because they that they were negotiating behind their backs to to enter, and that was the judge accepted that as a legitimate argument, and that's why he was able to slap. You can't go talk to the Victorians for a month now. I don't know how you can do that. You can tell somebody you can't go talk to them uh, across the border. Uh, the, other, the other thing that was, 1990 was the year that we went, the uh, Corporations Act changed. So I don't know whether that had a bit to do because uh, the AFL were a company, Port Adelaide were an incorporated association, which means they comply by the South Australian law, the same with the Sandfall. There's just the common law stuff about this deceptive uh, conduct which came into play. I've spoken to John Firth over the years about um, the situation and he says that um, they got legal advice from a couple of QCs that they probably, they probably would have won an appeal against the, uh, you know, yeah, the injunction that, that you can't go and talk to the Victorian. But he said, you know, they would have probably ended up in the High Court and it would have been a 12-month process which was useless, um, you know, because if you're told you can't talk for a month and you're still in the appeals process, that doesn't really solve anything. So the acrimony was that it was a, a bit of jealousy, the fact that we, you know, Dave Boyd had put a no vote in and it's almost felt like a, it, it was treachery, you know, you're, you're selling us down the river. And, and I guess as well, the, um, there was a, a personal a liability claim um, against each Port Adelaide director. So at that point, then it became all of those directors that they could lose their, their homes, their livelihoods, and and then they started to, to crumble as well. And um, in the meantime, with all of these legal actions in place holding stopping Port Adelaide from negotiating, the Sanford went off and negotiated themselves with the AFL, and that apparently, that was okay. And and we just couldn't... We, we tried to actually... Put a counterclaim in against them to stop them from doing that, and um, but that that was just deferred by the courts. So, oh no, that's a, we'll, we'll hear that in another month, and oh, that month was all they needed to get to get their own case across. Mm -hmm.